Hey, my name is Derek from You Stay Party, We Stay Die. You're listening to 93.5 FM Kootenai Cooperative Radio, CJLY, coming out of Nelson, Canada. <laughs> and coming out of Nelson, Canada, you're listening to Shift Happens, the Empower Hour. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And we have with us today... Uh, Mark Jeffries, Professor of Anthropology at Dixie State University. Hi. In Utah. Yes. So Mark has been doing uh, these food for thought talks in New Denver at the Knox Hall. For how, how many years have you been doing that? Well, I think I did the first one in 2010. Right. So a long time. Long enough. Super interesting talks. And we thought we would ask him to share some of what he's talking about to the larger audience, because you guys probably don't want to drive up to New Denver for... But if you're in the area... But please do. Please do. What's the date that this next one is? Uh, I'll be giving a talk Sunday night, uh, the 5th, at 7.30 at Knox Hall, which is right to the right of the only light in yeah. New Denver. British right Columbia. to the right of the, the only, only light. light. Yes. Wow. Say that 10 times Alliteration. in a row. Mm-hmm. Across from New Market Foods. And if you're listening to this on Sunday afternoon, it will be this evening. Yes. So, Mark, your talk this year is talking about some of the the diverse ancestry that is showing up in people's DNA now that we're doing all of this DNA exactly. testing. Hey? It turns out that we have a much more complicated backstory as a species than we had thought we did. But that's not terribly surprising. Um, an appropriate analogy would be as if you, you took a um, very simple photograph of, of a forest scene with a box camera or something, and mm-hmm. there'd be a fair lack of detail. As you got better cameras, you would get more detail, and eventually you, know, you might see that what you thought was a shadow is a bear or what you thought was a moose is an elk or whatever. Because mm-hmm. you get much more detail. And what's been happening in the last few years is that the ability to sequence not only the DNA of living human beings um, and animals and species, uh, but also fossils has gone up exponentially thousands of times. And now a great deal more information than we could have dreamed of really 20 years ago is coming out. So in some ways, this talk is just an update. And it's called Your Ghost Ancestors. I stole the idea of a ghost population from one of the foremost um, ancient DNA specialists, David Reich at Harvard. Um, But we actually have some very interesting um, twists and turns in the the story of how we got to be who we are. So they can DNA sequence fossils? Yes. I didn't know that. Absolutely. So... Um, 30 years ago, you could only sequence, if you were very, very lucky, um, something called mitochondrial DNA, right. which is more common and is simpler than your, your main nuclear chromosomal DNA. Um, and even then, they could only go back. They, they failed once trying to do a, 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 an Egyptian mummy 30 years ago because they got it contaminated and they got the wrong results. Now we're talking about pulling out DNA from fossils that are 20,000, 40,000 years old or older. Wow. So, so what are the, some of the surprises that have shown up in that process? Well, the one that is everybody's favorite 
um, and is now kind of spread uh, through the popular imagination enough so that if I bring it up, usually people will say, oh, yeah, I heard something about that, or oh, yeah, I know that, or they'll make a joke. Is Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, so, I heard something about that. Right. I know about that. So Svante Pabo's team uh, eight years ago published the first reasonably full sequence of a Neanderthal genome. And the bombshell was that we shared some of those genes, some, some of the stretches of genes in you and I, mm-hmm. in you and me, um, are from Neanderthals. Not much, probably 1%, maybe 2% tops, but, oh, okay. but some. And that's one of the things I'll talk about briefly at the, the mm-hmm. beginning. But there's weirder stuff than that. So Weirder stuff? Yeah. Oh, do tell. Well, yeah. that's where the Neanderthals aren't exactly a ghost population, right? People have we knew known about, about them for yeah. a long time. Mm-hmm. And there's many, many Neanderthal fossils. In fact, the first time they got DNA out of um, the, the first full sequence um, came out of an individual where they were sequencing from DNA from two arm bones and a leg bone. So they had three long bones right. they were sequencing from. And that's a, that's a robust piece of fossil record. So um, with Neanderthals, the big debate had been for a long time. First, did humans evolve directly from them? Did only some humans evolve directly from them since Neanderthals only showed up in, in Europe and in Eurasia? Um, or did they, were they a separate subspecies? Did we pass in the night? Did we bump into each other? All that stuff. Right. Um, and Initially, you couldn't really get that much stuff out unless you had a big fossil record like that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we're getting surprises from things uh, sort of going both ways. Either obscure bits of fossil that we can't, we don't have enough to actually put together a full fossil specimen to say it's, this was a, a species, right? Um, or a subspecies or which one it was. Um, but we can get DNA out and say, or we're, we've got the reverse in a sense where we can see in the DNA we're pulling, sometimes also from living populations, there are these telltale markers that, that hint to you that, ah, wait, somebody got in there somewhere a long time ago because this population has got an unusual sequence here with an unusually high number of mutations for that sequence, which usually means a much older sequence mm-hmm. um, in terms of divergence. It, and so we both have the case of, um, I'll mention this on Sunday, the case of the Denisovans, who are um, a population that was identified from just some toe and, and toe, uh, finger and teeth bones in, in a cave in Siberia. And going the other way, there were um, people that we knew, fossils we knew to look for before we had them because there were strong hints in genomes of living or other fossil individuals that there was a population out there that had existed at one point we just didn't know about. Um, and there are several more like that. Um, and then I, I, I would also say that the one of the startling things that, that Reich's team is coming up with is that there's also an awful lot of replacement in human history, which is sort of the nice way of saying people disappear. Um, there are whole populations that, that we know well from fossil and archaeological record 
And that was before the CIA? And that was before the CIA. All right. Yeah. Um, It it was, in some cases, several thousands or even more than 10,000 years before the CIA. All right. Um, yeah, there are large there are large places where um, people who live in a place now, the people who lived there long before them, um, are not related to them, and so oh. on. So, including the British Isles. So, so hmm. whatever species of human lived on the British Isles originally was completely wiped out. Well, there's not only species, but we're we're talking even about the history of modern African humans, that is, you and I, the people who largely emerged in Africa between 200,000 and 300,000 years ago, um, a subpopulation of which left Africa and about 60,000 or more years ago and spread around the world. But there were other human subspecies and, and maybe even fully distinct species I'm using those two terms right. to suggest that in, in the case of subspecies, we're talking about humans that are close enough that if they bump into each other, they can have babies, right? Right. They may not be the world's, you know, healthiest, most successful babies, mm-hmm. but they can have babies. They're not, they're not utterly separated. Like right? dogs and wolves? Yes, exactly. Right. Um, as opposed to once you get to the point where either you can't have offspring or any offspring would be completely infertile, so they can't have offspring. Right. You can no longer hybridize then you've got a real strong species barrier. We haven't found DNA yet from anything um, where, from any human where we could say this archaic human, so that's the generic term mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. older human fault. This archaic human was not just a subspecies. They were, they were out of the breeding pool. Um, there was some debate Neanderthals might be. They certainly split off from the bulk of our ancestors quite some time ago, right. a few hundred thousand years ago but not enough to make them completely incapable of hybridizing. What I mean about the British Isles is that there were actually earlier uh, hominids that came in through there, including one fossil called the Boxgrove Man, for instance, that are hundreds of thousands of years old and aren't part of our lineage. uh, They're not part of our lineage at all, as far as we know. It would be an extraordinary bombshell to find out that we shared some of theirs um, because they were geographically so far separated from our ancestry. Mm-hmm. And that happened repeatedly during ice ages. There were, we're not the only people right. to wander out of Africa and around the world. People have been wandering around inside Africa and outside of Africa and, and then evolving in situ in different places again and again and again. What I also mean, though, is that the very first, what are called sometimes fully modern or modern African or homo sapiens sapiens in, in the British Isles are gone now. They, they're not, to a large extent, they, ha- they have almost nothing to do with the DNA of living British populations and people who are descended from the historical British Isles. Did they look quite a bit like us? Well, that's one of the fun things about ancient DNA. It's getting to the point where when, as the, the people who are more interested in things like medical genetics and so on, are busy trying to figure out what the sequences of DNA that are in our genomes now, what they do, right? Oh, there's right, this yes. for this and this for this, or, or this trait might have many, many genes feeding into it, right? right? Or this particular gene might affect many, many traits. Both those things are often true. Um, as we know that, then the, 
ancient population geneticists who are pulling this stuff out of old DNA, more and more they can reference databases and say, oh, this oh, does this. this. This is like, you know, our gene for this. This mm-hmm. does this. Um, and also with other species too, but it's, it's kind of exciting when you can do it within your own species because increasing that time depth is like having a telescope going backwards in time. Mm-hmm. So you asked what the, the first modern humans in England looked like. There was actually a, a bit of a media splash about this earlier this year when uh, a team in Great Britain uh, actually produced a, a reconstruction with genetic information enhancing the reconstruction of, of a famous British fossil. And the, the genes indicated the person had very dark skin, black hair, not particularly curly black hair, but black hair, and deep blue eyes. And when that picture of a man with striking blue eyes, very dark skin, jet black hair, was flashed around international news media, it, it created a small Twitter storm, right? Of mm-hmm. course. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the commentary was, oh, this is what the original Britons looked like. Yes and no. It, it, it's what... One man looked like. It's what one man looked like. It's also it's, it's pretty likely that it's what his population tended to look like because we also have genes from other early Western Europeans mm-hmm. from the Upper Paleolithic up to the Neolithic, up to the farming revolution. And in those, in those cases, more than one, it, we've found that it, it, we're talking dark skin and, and light eyes. Um, that seems to have been a common pattern for them. But they're not around anymore. Nor are they original in the sense that they were the very first humans there, right? So mm-hmm. they were the first humans of our kind there. Right. So aside from the Neanderthals, uh, what other species or subspecies did we, do we currently have? Reptilian. Yeah. Just well, <laughs> we do. Actually, oh, really? That well, was if, you, if, you, if, you, if you, you have to remember that DNA is handed down continuously, right? Yeah. Right. So, right. although, you know, the differences between your genome and a mouse genome are pretty striking, or your genome and a gecko even more so, right. a lot of the stuff still does the same stuff. Hemoglobin still works like hemoglobin. A lot of the, mm-hmm. a lot of the things that work in animal bodies have been working more or less the same way, using more or less the same instructions in a huge variety of animals for millions of years. Um, so we're not talking about that particularly. What we are talking about is looking at more recent admixtures. Right. Um, and a big debate with anthropologists had been, did, did we have a fairly straight line that came out? Like, we know that the vast majority of our ancestry of, of humans that are alive today right. came from this one small population or or a few small populations in Africa you know, somewhere a couple hundred thousand, quarter million years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's still debate over fine-tuning that, but that was, that was pretty, pretty set, and that's still pretty set. The question was, did anything else get in there, right? What about Cro-Magnon Man? Didn't Cro-Magnon Man is, would be the, the, the individual I was talking about in Great Britain, right? Okay. So that's your classic Homo sapiens we have really high flat foreheads. We have pointy little weak chins. We, you know, have high Speak cheekbones. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> My chin is weak, but not pointy. Um, My head is pointy. <laughs> no, no, I guess not. No. It's a block it's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I might have a little. Square I might have true. a little extra Neanderthal myself because I've got a, a little occipital bun in the back, which right. is. 
they had sort of football shaped heads with very low foreheads okay. and, and right. that's where we still get this notion that low brow that that whole low brow high brow mm-hmm. right right yeah. if you're a neanderthal you're low brow right. actually their brains were huge by the way they on average they were slightly bigger than modern human brains are on average for whatever that's worth cool um, they just were shaped different i got brain envy and I, yeah. uh, we had a conversation with a young man in New Denver who had had his DNA sequenced, and his sister had had her DNA sequenced. And always dangerous. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And Are in you being his funny DNA, there? I'm being funny. Well, okay, yeah. good. But still, I mean, it can r- discover surprises, which yeah. may or may not be welcome in the family. Right, it happens but, more often than you think. Uh, he found out that he had a fairly large amount of Neanderthal DNA in his DNA sequence, and she didn't have very much at all or any. It would have to be some, right? It would would almost certainly be some. I I should point out a couple of things. That First, that um, not all populations, even at at the population level, have the same amount of Neanderthal DNA. In fact, one way you can kind of, you know, um, retroactively figure out some of the population movements and this is something I'll be talking about in a little more detail on Sunday, is, you know, where, how much pop, how much Neanderthal DNA is typical in that population might tell, and where, what kind, what parts of your DNA have Neanderthal tell you something um, about your population history. But it also can vary from individual to individual, right? So mm-hmm. that um, you have to remember that your um, mother's DNA and your father's DNA are, are spliced and that people sometimes we still sometimes use the old blood analogy we say like i'm one quarter this or i'm one yeah, eighth yeah. that right. Yeah. Right. as if we're cocktails that are being mixed um and we don't mix like that it, a closer analogy would be to having um a deck of cards and not even a shuffle like a bad cut right where mm-hmm. so for instance um each, each human egg, um, you have 45 splices in it than then the rearrangement, right? Before mm-hmm. it goes on, before it goes on to junior. And with sperm, it's 26 splices. So there are 71 stretches of, of DNA in the, and then, of course, the mix-up with the chromosomes, but leaving that aside, there are these big sl- splices that have done before the DNA is even Combine. Combine in the, in the chromosomes. So, it, again, it's like if, if you imagine you've got three billion or so base pairs, which are the sometimes called the letters of DNA, the individual molecules that, from, that it gets its name from. And you imagine that as like a gigantic deck of cards that, that you cut into 71 chunks and then combine. Um, so that it means that the brother and the sister, if, if they... If the mother and the father happen to have slightly different amounts of the Anatole DNA, or even if, depending on how the mother or the father's own splicing went, you could end up with more or less, right? Um, the, the places you have the Anatole DNA is kind of interesting, too. For instance, you've got, you're more likely to have the Anatole DNA that codes for keratin. Okay. Which makes hair and skin, or it's mm-hmm. involved. Right. hair and skin. The presumption there is that that little bit of DNA had some sort of advantage for modern Africans when they mated with Neanderthals and that maybe because of the colder climate, right, maybe just differences in, in, in skin density or 
air quality, it, it made some kind of difference. And in places where you have almost no Neanderthal DNA, um, or zero really, are in places where um, we, we think of as being the sort of nuts and bolts of us, right? The one other little kind of hot spot is the immune system, which means that there might have been some advantage to some of the, the immunological differences that Neanderthals carried. Sub-Saharan Africans, by the way, don't have Neanderthal DNA because they didn't they, walk out of Africa. They, to, they, 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 right. they were walking around in Africa, not walking around outside of Africa. So mm-hmm. uh, it shouldn't be forgotten that there was a lot of things going on in Africa. So um, I'm always careful not to say when we all left Africa, because obviously we're only talking about a subset of the population, but right. yeah, that subset bumped into Neanderthals and then dumped, jumped into, bumped into, or jumped into, as the case may be, um, these people from uh, Siberia, um, or at least that's where we found um, where Ante Pablo's team, I think, um, originally did the sequencing on this with help from David Reich's team. Uh, the the Denisovans, who were an unknown population that we only had a few little bones from. And the thought was, are these characters Neanderthals? Are they something else entirely? What are they? And it turned out they were something else entirely. They were not Neanderthals, although they're a bit closer to Neanderthals than to us. But Asian, Indonesian, New Guinean populations of modern humans have some stretches of their DNA that's entire, that that's Denisovan that's descended from this this subspecies. So they're another. So, so if you're European, you've probably got in, in your immediate background, you've probably got some Neanderthal, but not Denisovan. If you're East Asian, you probably have a teeny little bit of Denisovan and a bit more Neanderthal than the Europeans, which I'll explain on Sunday. And if you're from New Guinea, you actually have a fair bit of both. And if you're from South Africa, West Africa, East Africa, you got nothing. You got none, none of those. Now, you, there may be somebody else hiding that we haven't found yet, right? Mm-hmm. That's the exciting thing is that this stuff is coming out fast now. And we're starting to be able to interpret it. And it's back and forth, right? It, 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 there's, um, there are different disciplines that are illuminating different corners of this room. Mm-hmm. So the people who do population genetics and the people who do medical genetics, the people who are doing comparative genetics with modern populations and going out in the field like Sarah Tishkoff from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia who are collecting huge genome samples from previously understudied populations. Their, their information is helping people who are pulling out these very fragmentary and often heavily damaged you know, ancient genes Right, um, out of fossils and allowing them to compare, but it's 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 starting to stack up now, and so we can start saying things like this fossil had blue eyes. So, is there some kind of a universal database that everyone is contributing to? Like what I'm thinking as you're describing this is, it would be great if they could punch in the data and then actually see a, a visual representation of Okay, you know, based on the DNA, et cetera, et cetera, it would be really cool. You know, as you far as I know, we're not, we're not there yet. Yeah. What's happening, of course, is that there, there's almost a, um, a tsunami of, of data piling up. Mm-hmm. And it's piling up all kinds of places. 
It's a little bit like what's been going on with all the massive amounts of social data that's being piled up by social media so that, you know, scientists are turning to places like the, the data on Twitter posts or the data on Facebook posts mm-hmm. to, to look at patterns. Um, but those aren't centralized. And in those cases, of course, they're also, you know, they're also controlled privately as corporations. And we all know all the issues with, with privacy and those problems there. Yeah. Um, with DNA data, they... There's something similar starting to happen with, you know, companies like Ancestry.com, 23 and so on, 23 mm-hmm. and me and so on, yeah. building up these large databases. They're separate. There's also the databases that scientists are doing separately mm-hmm. because there are populations that are not going to be sending their DNA into Ancestry.com. Either they, mm-hmm. they can't or they can't afford it or they don't want to. There are populations that there's actually very delicate negotiations, often right. religious populations or indigenous populations where scientists have to be much more respectful than we've been in the past um, about how what we, what we can sample or what we can what we can find out what kind of data we can share. So right now there are big pools of data piling up, but they're pretty decentralized. Okay. Um, although I did see that the that there I mean this in this I'm no more informed than anybody else reading the news. I, I've seen that right they've been using um, data from people sending in stuff to 23andMe and, and Ancestry.com and those kind of things to try to track down forensic cases. Right. So they, that this, there was a serial killer in California a month or two ago that was identified partly through DNA. Um, what about privacy issues when you're getting your DNA sample? That it, it just becomes I accessible would, by anybody? I would be very thoughtful about that if I were you. Um, they... The ins and outs of who owns what yeah. are, are labyrinthine, and mm-hmm. it's fairly early in the sense that a lot of the, the law for this, a lot of the legal precedent, particularly in common law countries, ha- isn't well established enough yet. Mm-hmm. So I think you'll see more cases. Right now, in some ways, you know, 20 years ago, People were all wor- already worried about internet privacy, um, but nobody was sequencing themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even, even 10, 15 years ago, it was pretty rare. Uh, 14 years ago, I had um, part of my DNA sequence because I carry a genetic mutancy that's uh, autosomal dominant, which means that you know, there's a 50-50 chance of spreading it to, to any offspring. Right. And, um, and, it, and it's what's called deleterious, meaning it, it's just bad. Not it, beneficial. You, you, don't, you don't want it, right? Um, it, in my case, it makes my bones very fragile and I break very easily. And so I had, I had a, a research team, a medical research team, locate where my mutation was so that at least in theory... I could test for it, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing I could do about it. There's nothing you can do about it yet. Um, but at least since you know it's there, right? Right. And it turned out that, that um, the mutation I carried was, was unique, at least in the sense it was the first time they'd spotted that one. It was a, it was a point mutation in a single letter, um, but it's just in a bad place, right? Um, and I later had my Y chromosome tested um, through National Geographic's National Genographic Program, mm-hmm. about again about twelve years ago, 
12 years ago or so. Back then, though, except for like little specialty things like that, right? You could either like test your maternal ancestry through mtDNA or your general, very general, you know, male ancestry through having your Y chromosome. Back then, basically, they would say, well, you've got this type of Y chromosome, what's called a haplotype. And you, it, it, it puts you, you know, you could, you could say very general things. Like I remember National Geographic sent me back a little kit telling me, well, you know, you're, you're, you have Western European ancestors. Um, and when right. my mitochondrial DNA was tested, actually fairly earlier, actually because I had wanted to work in an ancient DNA lab and, and got rejected for a particular project because my mitochondrial DNA, DNA happens to be um, Eastern North American only because mitochondrial DNA is passed on only matrilineally. So it's a mother's 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 mother. Just by coincidence, out of if you go back six generations for me, all my ancestors, save for one in that generation, are from European backgrounds. But my mother's 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 mother mother, I think, um, was a woman named Sarif Sequoia, and she was a Senecan from upstate New York. So I had a, I was carrying around a, a North American haplotype, and my mitochondrial DNA. And to do mitochondrial DNA research, I might. That might contaminate on oh. Native American remains that might contaminate the findings, right? So don't put me in that lab. Right. But other than that, you know, that was about all anybody could do right. up to about five, 10 years ago. Now I have students who just buy kits like presents for their family members. You had the brother and the mm-hmm. sister mm-hmm. both do it. Um, and I regularly see in the news media there's somebody who, you know, discovered there, there was a wonderful, actual, lengthy piece in, I think, the Washington Post about a woman who discovered that um, that her her father was in fact not only not her grandparent grandfather's child wasn't her grandmother's child wasn't even the same ethnicity. Um, it it turned out that in, in, in a New York hospital about a hundred years ago, uh, a an wow. Irish baby, an Irish Catholic baby. And a Jewish baby were swapped in the hospital, and one was raised Jewish in in the South, and later the family moved to the South, and one was raised Irish Catholic, um, in exact crisscross from, and their descendants all. It sounds like a makings of a good joke. Yeah, or yeah. a Maury Povich show or something, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but they did a nice job with it, and sort of the, the family that had to do a lot of detective work right. to figure out what had gone on. It, mm. it, it, so there's lots of stuff like that coming out. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun for people to, to really find out. But, but I would... There I is would, a downside. Though. I would investigate, you know, do your due diligence with whichever company. Yeah. Because if you're sending in your full DNA now, which of course they can do, and also these companies now are matching DNA to genealogical databases, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which, you know, also, you know, the, the LDS church can do with matching to their huge... Um, genealogical data, database. Once you've been matched, you know, your, your full genome has been matched to a, a genealogical database. That's a lot of information that's being stored somewhere. Yeah. Um, not only about you, but about your family. And what right you should probably look into do, you know, for once, read the fine print on the long thing. Mm-hmm. You know? And whether they actually honor the fine print. Yes. Right. right? I mean, you you're know, taking them at their word too. To a certain extent, right? Yeah. But at least if there's some fine print yeah. That says that you have the legal right yeah. to to withdraw your information later. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some cases where you don't. You don't. Yeah. So. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that really brings up an issue, like not only the privacy issue, but also the potential for someone to look at your DNA in the future and say, oh, well, you've got a tendency toward, I don't know, More psychopathy profiling. or something. Right. It's and another layer of profiling. Yeah, or or for. racial profiling. You could say, yeah. all right, well, Asians tend to have this particular trait. I mean, it brings in a whole other level of potential. There's profiling. There's also, there's also of course, insurance issues. Right. I, it, it's something that, that is something with which I'm intimately familiar because my particular single point mutation just happens to be one that manifested an obvious medical condition, right? Right. So nobody had to do any DNA testing to know that I had a pre-existing medical condition. And yes, living in the United States, you know, there has been, I'd almost want to say hell to pay for being born with a genetic disability. There's certainly been a lot to pay. Um, and it's very difficult to, to uh, even with the ACA, and especially now the ACA has been partially gutted or, or damaged, it's very difficult to get insurance if you have an obvious pre-existing genetic condition. I have one that's obvious to everybody, everybody. But other people. But you and you and you and you and you may be harboring things that, that are not so obvious without a genetic test, but would be very interesting to the insurance companies if they could see your genetic test. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to simply, you know, I, I don't think that, that, that insurance companies, um, even full-on private corporate insurance companies, necessarily attract evil people. <laughs> I used to work... I don't know. Really? I know, I know. Lots of people really? feel that. Hmm. I used to work for one myself, and, and my favorite poet used to be one. But they... But, but yes, you're, you're giving them a moral hazard, right? Yeah. There's a profit margin to be made. There are... There are you know, insurance underwriters are trying to figure out who lives and who dies, who's more likely to live and who's more likely to die. They're trying to pool their risk and they're trying to shave that pool in a way that helps them. Hmm. So I'm going to take the subject of, or the, the point of this uh, in a slightly different direction. Okay. Our show was called Shift Happens. I noticed. And... Uh, and I was very careful not to say it to anyone. Oh, yeah? I have a lisp, so that could go wrong. Oh, go ahead. You have a justifiable okay. excuse. Say shift 10 times yeah. just for our benefit. <laughs> we, we can blame him. We use shift yeah. whenever we want to say shift. Got it. So my question is, this is a very fascinating line of work, in my opinion. And... What I his too. Well, I'm sure it is. But, <laughs> but my question is, is what got you on this path in the first place? So, you know, were you passionate about this when you were five years old? Or oh, what no, happened no. in your life to make you so jazzed about this? And then the other thing is, is what was the benefit to you taking this particular path? When you look back on your life and you say, yeah, I'm glad I did this because of these things. Can you share? Yeah, I would say that, first of all, I, I should make it very clear. I am not an ancient DNA specialist. I do, not, okay. I do not extract ancient DNA, and I do not do ancient DNA analysis. Um, I had a, a, a near miss with it that I want to talk about when I get around to 
giving the giving the food for thought talk on Sunday. Okay, but um, about twenty years ago. But by then, I had decided to go into anthropology, but it wasn't something that I had gotten into um, at an early age. And I wasn't. I I was a I was a poetry professor for a long time. And poetry. Yes. Wow. Um, down at the University of Alabama. Okay. And, um, and I, that's what I did. Um, and I started getting interested actually in things having to do with um, what was at the time a sort of academic movement, um, sometimes called uh, disability studies, um, with, within sort of other academic movements like cultural studies and women's studies and so on. Mm-hmm. But it, with disability studies, it, it, a lot, it had a lot to do initially with just access issues for disabled academics, you know, um, and then began to mushroom into more theoretical stuff and people working on what does it mean to be disabled? What does it mean to have an extraordinary body, um, to, to use Rosemary Garland Thompson's phrase? And in working with that community, I began to try to articulate for myself for the first time because right. there's nothing... There's nothing about disability that isn't diverse because one disability is not the next disability. Is not. Mm-hmm. We, we're, we're, we're diversity by definition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't really homogenize us and, and we can't homogenize ourselves. There, there was, I remember from that time period, somebody um, was having a debate at a, at a, a conference and saying, well, how can, we, how can we even talk about disability as having any kind of cultural component because we've just been medically designated and, and, and so there was this discussion going on about how to have disability culture. And part of the discussion was, well, you know, what makes a culture? This was before I was an anthropologist, so I did not have any kind of good thing to answer to say to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody was saying, well, you know, language. Well, there's no dis- the, the people, the deaf culture, Some, yes, deaf culture exactly. has, has its own distinct, clear, proud cultural identity. Mm-hmm. But where does that leave people who identify as disabled but who who aren't deaf um, right that's like big d deaf with a you know uh, deaf culture and one person said well food right a cult- you could you could define a culture by food and somebody laughed and said well disabled people don't have a cuisine and somebody <laughs> else piped up and said oh oh yes we do drive through food <laughs> <laughs> which is true for a lot of us i remember my right. my Right. My father, who was in a wheelchair, lived for drive-through food. Right. Right. Um, don't have, especially back in the days before there was an ADA or any kind of access laws. You right. Know, it allowed him to get in. Right. So those issues began, but but I also began to sort of think about what defined, you know, my own position differently than various other forms of disability. Because now that I was interacting with a lot of people who were bringing their own stories to the table, so as it were, um, and I started thinking a lot more about genetics. And I was also very interested in the idea of how culture itself evolves, which is actually my primary field of interest still. And I ended up writing a couple of essays that had to do with those topics as an English professor, not as, not mm-hmm. as a scientist. And one of them caught the attention of a scientist out at UC Davis who said, he, he, yeah, he more or less gave me the, you know, the... the uh, Thumbs up? No, I, I, it was... It was it was almost more like he proselytized. He was like, mm-hmm. you got to come join our, oh, our side, okay. right? 
come, come cross over the river. Um, and so I ended up at the University of Utah because they had a program that was very strong in evolutionary anthropology in the traditional fields, but also had some people who did uh, mathematical modeling of cultural evolution who were also geneticists and population and coalescent geneticists. And that meant that, you know, I had a sort of natural home there. Um, so in a sense, your point mutation brought you to this point. Yes, you could say that. It pointed me to the point. Um, it, it did to a certain extent, right? It, and that, but that was late in life, really. You know, I was, I was already pushing 40. And right. I just, I, just I, I walked away from, a, from a, a gig as an English professor and became, became an anthropologist. And, mm-hmm. and as an anthropologist, I've actually moved more in the direction of uh, language evolution and cultural evolution. But, of course, having been trained in coalescent genetics, which is a sort of population genetics where you look backward at... at mm-hmm. you, it, it's a fairly math-intensive um, discipline. You, you, that's the one where we're trying to figure out, oh, well, you know, given all this pattern of mutations and differences between these two people... Where do they coalesce? What was their last common ancestor, right? Mm-hmm. So I still have a toe in the water with that um, and colleagues who, who do that. Mm-hmm. And also, I just couldn't resist. One of the lovely things about a food for thought talk is that they give you a lot of leeway, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm giving academic presentations, I have to be more confined to areas where, right. you know, I've done original research or I've published or you mm-hmm. know, where I've got, you know, the academic equivalent of street credentials, right? But for a food for thought talk, you know, as somebody who's informed on this subject mm-hmm. um, and who is in the general vicinity of the field um, and has read up on it, I can be a sort of um, translator, right? Bring, mm-hmm. bring that right. to a group of people who might be curious about it, but I mean, they don't, they don't want to read, you know, 27 recent papers on ancient DNA, right? Right. They want someone to give them the cliff notes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, oh, I just have one, an important question Go for here. It. Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Is it possible that <laughs> he or she existed? Okay, I never say that that something like that is impossible. Yeah. Um, the whole cryptozoology thing, and occasionally, you know, species are found all the time. Right? right. Occasionally, even recently, a few fairly large mammal species have been found in places like the forests of northern Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're talking about goats, right? We're not talking about right. We're not talking about primates. Um, I could I could remotely see another substantial primate being found, but the apes are very large bodied, and and a Bigfoot, if a Bigfoot ever existed, is huge bodied. That, that's the whole point, right? Right. right. Um, the odds of a biped of that size evading capture mm-hmm. or being shot and stuffed um i'd say that the odds are extremely right. extremely long and the same goes for something like yeti mm-hmm. um there was by the way though just to, to for, for fun there was at one time the largest primate that we know of was a fossil species of orangutan which was gigantopithecus which isn't that great? Say it sounds, that one sounds ten like times. sounds like sounds like it should be something in a in a you know a, a good nineteen sixties Japanese movie, right? Yeah, Gigantopithecus <laughs> or Snuffleupagus, <laughs> right? Well, Gigantopithecus versus Snuffleupagus. There you go. Um, 
So yeah, mm. but it was it was a huge thing and right. r- probably roughly the size of, but it it lived in in Southeast Asia and it uh, it was orange and probably ate mostly fruit. All so right, it wasn't was wasn't wasn't Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Mm. But keep up the hope if that's you know well if that works for you. Right. This stuff kind of intrigues me. I mean, I've had some interesting discussions with people. Uh, like a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy with a very convincing argument that the earth is flat. All right. And I'm not saying I believe that, but it's just, it's interesting listening to people's opinion. And when they can back it up with their various data, it's like, oh, that's interesting. But mm. yeah. So, okay, my, oh, you had a question and I wanted to oh, ask well, a did. serious I, one after this. I did. I Well, going back to that place where you said the the earliest point at which we had a common ancestor. Do we all have a common ancestor? Yes. Do we know anything about this ancestor? Is his name Adam? No. Okay. Uh, it'd be highly unlikely. All right. Cool. I mean, actually, I wouldn't rule that out, right? Because I don't, right. we don't, we don't have the fossilized language. So right. by coincidence, Adam, by the way, in, in Hebrew means a man, a person. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, it could be a language where, where the guy happened to be named Adam. Right. I, I would, Bet that um, first of all, we've got there's several ways of answering. It's going to, I'm going to mm-hmm. race through them, right? Okay. So we have the last common maternal ancestor, right? The last that doesn't mean that that we all descended only from that woman, right? She's sometimes called mitochondrial Eve or African Eve. It means that that's the that's the last time that somebody lived, a woman lived, who. Everybody now, alive now, counts among their ancestors, right? right? So like you and your cousin share a grandmother. That's your last common ancestor with your cousin. Yeah. You've got other grandparents, right? Mm-hmm. So when we say right. last common ancestor, right, it doesn't mean the only ancestor. Not only that, but the, the Y chromosomal ancestor, meaning the last common male ancestor, is different and is on a is actually a little more time depth there um, because... The histories of mothers are different than the histories of fathers, mm-hmm. which is another thing I, I hope to bring up on Sunday night because um, it leaves patterns. You can, you can see the patterns of invasions of populations by other populations or of extremely wealthy males by the way Y chromosomes are distributed in descendant populations. So the Y chromosomal ancestor is a little bit older. Mitochondrial Eve, maybe 156,000 years ago. Um, Y chromosomal ancestor older, but then you're talking about also what would be the oldest sort of maternal population, right? Meaning the oldest, the mother village of us, right? Right. Which would probably have been somewhere earlier than that, right? Um, and you can keep going, right? There are all these coalescent points. The only problem with coalescent points from, and this is why fossil DNA is so wonderful, is that behind a coalescent point, once, you, once you've worked it out mathematically where the coalescent was, um, you can't go any further with, with the DNA you have available right. with the living DNA because that's a dead end, right? Because after that, right. it right. all is the same. So there's no, there's no information in it. You need difference to have some information. Right. But there's mm-hmm. also such a thing as like, there's a last common ancestor for humans and Neanderthals, which um, the last common ancestor, not just the last Neanderthal to, to get jiggy with a human, but the or a modern human, but the, the last one to be ancestors of 
all modern humans and all Neanderthals. That's about three quarters of a million years back. And we couldn't do that until we got Neanderthal DNA. See how much longer back that is than, mm-hmm. than right. African Eve? That, that, gave us, that gave us that telescope another 600,000 years to right. look further back. Um, and there are estimates. For, you know, one way you can look further back is to get fossils. And the other way is to go wider and wider, right? So if you compare human DNA with chimpanzee DNA, you can go back about five, six, seven million years. The problem is, of course, that there's a lot of empty space in between there because they're so different. So Neanderthals were really helpful. They fill in a little bit. And boy, if we could get some Homo erectus DNA, lordy, that would be nice. That, that would help fill us in even more. Mm-hmm. And there's also something called a, 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 a theoretical but, but almost certainly real ancestor that is referred to by the acronym LUCA, which would be the last universal common ancestor. Because life only continues if it continues, right? Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no break in the line between you and, you know, the, the, the very early, exactly, right? And the mm-hmm. bacteria and before, right? There's, it, everything had to have offspring for you to be here. And when, if you're out in the field and you're looking at the grasses, they are an unbroken chain and the fish are an unbroken chain. And at some point that chain had to converge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and there's a whole separate field of science, kind of wonderfully fascinating field that I like to just keep an eye on, even though it's not my field at all, which, you know, are, they, they're trying to reconstruct what would Luca have looked like the last universal common ancestor. There are certain genes I mentioned earlier that, for instance, you share with mice or with geckos. Right. There are certain genes that are very basic, right? That seem to be shared. Well, those are probably your, your, your very basic protein genes. Even the whole RNA DNA system is is shared across life platforms around the world. And um, there was actually an article that came out yesterday that where a team was thinking that they had. That I haven't read the full article. I just read the news report of it, so right. um, I, I can't say anything about the methodology. But the they they feel that like they found a the 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 evidence for when the RNA, DNA, amino acid production system that builds our bodies, builds all living bodies, was simpler, right? So a sort of ancestor of the system itself, right? Mm. When there were only two messenger RNA molecules or two transfer RNA molecules, and they were shepherding two kinds of amino acids, not the 20 kinds that we build Mm -hmm. proteins from today. This might get kind of complicated and technical, and maybe we don't want to get into it, but I've always been curious, uh, what's the actual difference between RNA and DNA? Um, It's actually a letter. (laughs) Yeah. So Simple answer. So if you say it out loud, the full name, right? So one is deoxyribonucleic acid, Mm -hmm. DNA, and one is just ribonucleic acid, RNA. Mm -hmm. RNA is a single chain, right? Okay. And if you're thinking of it as a, like, if you think of the spiral as like a twisted ladder, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you have the both rungs or both. D- yeah, DNA is like you've got, a, you've got a two-handled ladder and you've twisted it and the rungs now are a spiral going up, whereas RNA is, is a single template. Okay. So if you peel apart DNA, you, you can then match it up into RNA. And DNA tends to, in, in modern organisms, all kinds of modern organisms, DNA tends to just hang out usually in the nucleus of the cell if it's a 
if it's a eukaryotic or, organism, um, and not go anywhere, um, almost like the queen ant in a, in a colony. And the various kinds of RNA come in and do the job of like making the... Co- you can almost think of them as a, as a combination of a copy machine and, and the gopher clerk that goes in to get the copies. They go in, they get the copies, they translate them out into proteins. The tRNA is translator RNA. That translates, you know, proteins into, in, into long, well, amino acids into long chains of proteins that are, that are built outside of the nucleus. And, and then there's this wonderful stuff, which really does get too complicated, but I'll just mention it. Um, you may hear people talk about epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, it's become fashionable to talk about it. I think it excites people because they like the idea. It, it implies, oh, genes aren't my destiny. And epigenetics means other things can happen. Um, it's maybe not so wonderful as all that, but, but epigenetics basically refers to molecules that bind on... T- they're not actual genes themselves. They're not DNA themselves. But they bind um, sometimes in methyl groups on top of passages in the DNA and, and essentially act like either on-off switches or dimmer mm. switches. And they get stripped off every generation, but they don't always necessarily get completely stripped off. And right. so that's where, like, for instance, parental condition at time of the baby's mm-hmm. conception or birth can actually affect them. It's not literally rewriting their genome, but it's rewriting the way in which their genome is expressed. So some genes are turned up or on, off. And, mm-hmm. and so it's like they make... The gene's there, it makes the protein, but maybe it's not making as much of it as, as it might have been had, had the parent been in a different environment during the pregnancy. We have a friend, Muriel Harris, uh, mm-hmm. who lives in Silverton, New Denver area. And in the summer. Professor of genetics, right? Mm-hmm. And she was explaining UBC. to me. Yeah. yeah, at UBC, that they work with a strain of mice that has been bred mother to daughter or whatever. Right to son for so many generations that they are virtually identical uh, genetically. Right. And that uh, they have the, the gene for cleft palate. But because of this tRNA, mm-hmm. this, as she called it, blanket that covers some parts of the genetic sequence. I think you're thinking of, uh, uh, maybe not tRNA, but oh. maybe the epigenetic. Epigenetics, right, right. 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 Um, that because of that, some of those mice, even though they're identical, develop cleft palate and some, some do don't. not. Yeah. And that's because of this uh, activity of the ability of epigenetics exactly. to, yeah. to dampen the manifestation of a particular gene. Can I say something about Muriel Harris? Yes. So one time I was giving a food for thought talk and it happened to have a large genetic component. And around the middle of the talk, I realized that Muriel, Muriel Harris wasn't. was there. And... <laughs> I almost had a heart attack because <laughs> I, I thought, I, I know I've screwed something up. Muriel Harris, for, for anyone who doesn't know her, is one of the pioneers of genetic research. Um, she's been doing groundbreaking lab genetic research since the 1960s. And um, I was actually thinking while I was talking to you, I had part of my brain, before you brought her up, part of my brain was thinking, she's not listening. if she is listening, I hope that as I'm pattering along here, I haven't you know, misspoken on, on something that was silly or obvious because... She hasn't called in, so... Yeah, I, well, it's, it's, yeah. It's, like having, it's like having one of your mentors in the room, right? right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like you're back to, okay, it's, it's, it's exam time. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I was actually sitting here thinking as you were talking, darn, I forgot to tell Muriel to listen to the show today. So I don't know. She may or may not be. Well, she can listen to it on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, or she can come in on Sunday and tell me what, what I got wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did have one professor once do that to me, only not about genetics. It was actually at a behavioral economics conference, which is another thing I actually do do. And um, I got a, I got, I won't explain what this is, but I got a Nash equilibrium wrong. And a German professor, it was almost like an alleyway mugging. He pulled me outside after the conference, literally into an alleyway between two buildings and grabbed me by the lapels to tell me I'd done my math wrong and I'd misidentified equilibrium. And I was as terrified as if I was being mugged. (laughs) Wow. Well, that does sound rather intimidating. (laughs) So I have to interrupt at this point. We've only got, yeah, I mean, this hour went by very, very quickly. But before we bring it to a close, I want to remind the audience about what's coming up on Sunday. So food for thought. Or if you're listening on Sunday, what's coming up this evening. Mark Jeffries, professor professor of anthropology at Dixie State University, is going to be doing a food for thought talk at Knox Hall on Sunday. What's the date? Uh, that's the fifth, the seven thirty of August, seven thirty. Yeah. Ghost ancestors. Very cool topic. Thank you. And very cool conversation that we just had. Thanks. I had fun. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. We'd love to have you on again. Even when you go back to, you know, jolly good uh, states, we can do this over the phone or via video chat. So Anytime. If you, if you can put up with my long-winded answers, then I'm, I'm oh, happy to, we to love take them. questions. Yeah, we love long-winded. It lets us She gets long-winded very often, <laughs> too. Yeah. Anyway. yeah, I've been known to talk nonstop yeah. for half an hour, but we really don't want to. Yeah. And probably the audience doesn't want me to either. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it has been a pleasure. and uh, So we've been talking to Mark Jeffries. Yes, we have been. Excellent last name. My first name is Jeffries, so. So, so you're not biased. So, no, no it, not at all. I, I wish I had Jeffrey Jeffries. Would you, do you, I would have, you adopt I, I me? Have, I have a cousin, Jeffrey Jeffries. Oh, cool. Yeah. Must be a great guy. Anyway, if you want to share this conversation with any of your friends, listen in again on Sunday at 11 o'clock and you'll hear a repeat. All right, so that's our show for today, and we'll be back next week. So hold on for one more week.